Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Harry's. A close, comfortable shave, honest prices, no gimmicks. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And I have a question for you. Where do crypto companies like Dash, Coindesk, IOHK, Polymath, T0, Lisk, Zencash, where do they go for PR? Well, I'll tell you. They go to Waxman PR. And I got a chance to sit down with him to talk about how he started one of the biggest, most influential PR companies in the digital asset space. He started from scratch with a WeWork and a laptop and some good old fashioned diligence. So we get to hear about his journey. We get to hear about the future. We get to hear about crypto PR 101. And we also just talk about the crypto space in general. But before that, please check us out on YouTube, Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron, so you can get the previews and the roundups for every podcast that we put out. You get my opinion, you get how we got to this conversation, and my own personal thoughts about the companies, the people, the situations, and so on and so forth. Also, go to Crypto101podcast.com. There you can join our Facebook, our Twitter, and Instagram. Join the conversation. Also, please think about becoming a patron. The patrons have been supporting Crypto 101 since the beginning. Thank you guys very much. I hope you're enjoying the content. Also, send me an email. Say what's up. Give me any information, comments, suggestions that you would like. And go to iTunes, CastBox, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe. Tell other people to subscribe. Leave us a rating and a comment. It is very appreciated. Now, without further ado, let's talk to David about Crypto PR 101. David Waxman of Waxman, welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks for having me, Master. I appreciate it. You know, I was on your website, Waxman.com, and I was looking at your portfolio of all the crypto companies that you represent for your PR company. Dash, Polymath, IOHK, Steemit, Lisk, just to name a few. So who's better to talk to about the 101 of PR in the cryptocurrency landscape than you? Well, I appreciate the chance to come on here and talk with your listeners. So what we want to do today is first, we want to get to know you a little bit. Then we want to talk about your PR company. How did it all start? Where did it come from? Where did you even get the idea to start representing crypto companies? Or was that an evolution? And then I want to go into just representing a company. Some of the challenges, some of the pros, the cons. Do you ever turn anybody ever away from representing them? Or man, maybe some, you know, maybe hidden tidbits in the PR world. And then go into the crypto space in general. What do you think? Sounds like fun. All right, sir. David, who are you, sir? Well, I'm actually a New Yorker from New York. So I'm one of the few people here. I'm currently sitting in a skyscraper in Manhattan who was actually born on this island. And I grew up both in New York and then in the adjoining areas and moved back here as a young adult and have stuck around ever since. My parents, my dad was born in Brooklyn and my mom is from Kansas. My dad actually kind of has an interesting story. He was the first person in his family to go to high school and managed to become a neurosurgeon and then a lawyer. And wow. I got to grow up with a lot of books around me. Um, my dad, however, was one thing he was not, well, smart man as he, as he, as he is, uh, was not someone who understood the first thing about technology. And I got very lucky growing up that my parents supported me playing around with computers and trying to figure out kind of how this 
whole new internet thing worked, it, it kind of at its very beginning. And I've always been interested in like really complicated technologies and trying to understand the mechanics of how they work. But I never considered myself a technologist and I didn't initially pursue a career in technology. It, it kind of just came on me. When were you born by any chance? I was born in 1979. I was born in 1983. So uh, a lot of the people from kind of my era have started a lot of the, the internet companies from the, you know, kind of let's call the dot-com 2.0s, mm-hmm. right? The, the companies like Reddit, Facebook. Um, I was actually in a high school class with Mark Zuckerberg, as it turns out. And these guys, you know, they kind of created what we've seen, you know, kind of as the establishment companies on the internet today. And it's interesting because they were disrupting media companies and internet companies from before them. And I think what we're seeing now with blockchain is a whole new series of entrepreneurs doing something very interesting. One of the most important elements is that this is happening much more globally today. It's not simply concentrated in the United States. And I think that's something we're probably going to touch on later in this interview. Absolutely. And the reason why I ask about the age question is I have this theory that if you were born like anything before 19, say 80 or 79, you almost kind of like missed it because when computers became popular and affordable, you were already in your your either late teens or early 20s. So if you're catching it around 14 years old, then you just hit it perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, my, my mom started me with an Apple II GS a very, very long time ago in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And in the early 90s, we got a Mac. And I, you know, completely fell in love and I've been actually an Apple acolyte ever since. Um, <laughs> but the, the truth is, yeah, it was, it was just the right age. And I got to have enough exposure to the internet ecosystem to understand kind of why it succeeded and possibly some of its weaknesses as well. And again, I think we're seeing a lot of the exposure of those flaws and kind of what we're doing today. Where'd you go to university? And if, when you went to university, so what did you study there? So yes, I, I went to Binghamton University in upstate New York and I studied economics and English. It turned out to be kind of the perfect mix for what I wanted to do or what I turned out to do. Now, I got to tell you, I did not know that I wanted to be in PR. Mm -hmm. And this this was kind of almost the last thing I wanted to do. But I was working with um, a lot of different companies in in different areas. I was working in advertising and politics and biotech. And it turns out that the one tether between all of those different roles was that there was something having to do with writing and being able to communicate complicated things in a very, very simple way. I was forced to do that for all these companies and organizations and people because they needed that help. And so eventually I gave in and I figured, why don't you go where your strengths are? And that turned out to be in public relations. So in 2012, uh, I started working with, or 2013, I I left uh, an ad agency and I joined Erico Communications, which is a boutique PR firm here in New York City. I was immediately thrust in kind of a leadership position where I was kind of managing much of the day-to-day operations and our clients were completely uh, disparate. I had billionaire real estate developer clients. I had clients in the cosmetic space. I had a client that was creating industrial LEDs and beyond and beyond. And because there was no specialization, I had to become kind of something like a basic expert, which sounds like an oxymoron, but basically I had to know enough (laughs) be able to talk to reporters who are the most cynical people in the world because they've earned that badge of honor. And I had to be able to go and tell them, hey, I've got something new for you. This is kind of interesting and and, and let's talk about it before introducing them to my clients. And I, I suddenly had to learn about a lot of these different topics. More importantly, I learned how to do actual PR, which is to say to do the really granular logistical mechanics that make up working in an agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to juggle lots of different types of clients at the same time, 
which is very important too, since PR is very much a deadline driven game. And it was while I was working with all these different types of companies, I started working with some technology companies. And it's interesting, the way I, I, I mean, I discovered Bitcoin earlier on, that is to say, I had read about it in TechCrunch, I had read about it in Mashable, but it wasn't until I went to a bar here in Manhattan, in lower Manhattan, and I met the CEO of a company called Coinsetter, which was a Bitcoin exchange. This was early 2014, that I really got to understand Bitcoin. So Jaron, who was the CEO, he was around my age, uh, a little bit younger, and he was this super charismatic guy who was working with this really nascent technology. And he had come from investment banking and private equity. But I'm telling you, I mean, this guy wore only t-shirts. I can't even imagine him actually wearing a tie. <laughs> and he was the person who eventually became my professor in all things Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So I started working with his company called Coinsetter. And they were one of the first VC-backed exchanges, and they were here in New York. And initially, they were focused on institutional trading. So that meant that they assumed that big banks and hedge funds and traditional financial institutions would start actually trading Bitcoin all the time. And they were trying to gear up for that. So they created all this type of technology, mm -hmm. assuming that there would be a huge rush. But guess mm -hmm. what? It never happened. Because it turned out Bitcoin was still a pretty nascent technology, and the demand wasn't there yet. So what happened was Coinsetter had to pivot and pivot. And I got to be, very luckily, part of, of that maneuver and helping get exposure to all the new technology they were doing, uh, developing, but also to all the different markets they were catering to. And there's this thing called the retail market. That's basically the people who buy and sell Bitcoin on Coinbase. Mm -hmm. And that's the market that we eventually began to attack. Um, I worked with Jaron and Coinsetter all the way through their sale to Kraken in early 2016. And uh, it was a total eye-opener for me. It was through working with an exchange that I had to understand why Bitcoin was important, why people outside of America probably needed Bitcoin more than we did even in the US, why it was that Bitcoin was to some extent flawed, that is to say, needed continuous improvement, and why things like wallets existed and how Bitcoin ATMs worked. And it turned out that working with this kind of what was a centralized exchange, but this one place that really was a kind of a nexus point for, for much of crypto gave me an education that has been fundamental and, and useful ever since. You know, it sounds like when you said about your early time in PR that you were sort of an entrepreneur. Even though you were working for a company, you had to research these different companies on your own. You had to understand them. You had to go out and understand how to position them, position yourself, how to communicate with the media, how to communicate with them. That really sounds like somebody that's, you know, basically their own business. I, I learned so much there, and I've got to give a lot of credit to the president of that company, Eric Yaderbaum, who is a tour de force of a guy. He actually wrote PR for dummies and had owned and operated and sold a very successful PR agency himself before he set up the boutique that I worked at. And he gave me an enormous amount of latitude and when I needed it, the, the guidance. And uh, I've got to tell you, that's been really, really helpful. And when I did eventually endeavor to start my own firm, he was my biggest supporter um, and I'm, I'm super grateful. But it was, it was that education of actually having to figure out how to make clients succeed. So making a company happy, making the, the stakeholders in that company happy is one thing. What matters more is actually making sure they're successful because a company is very happy to go and pay you your retainer. And that's how PR companies work. They, they get a monthly retainer mm -hmm. um, in, in exchange for their services rendered. And if you're able to make them succeed and you're providing sufficient results, they're more than happy to go and send the next retainer check. And that's the lifeblood, of course, of a PR agency. And I, I learned the mechanics of it and kind of the A to Z working for Eric 
And I, I use that when I, when I launched this thing in 2015. You mentioned two people here, two mentors. How important were they to get you opening your own business? So Jaron was probably the most important person in, in, in making me do this. He, he kept saying that I had the opportunity to do so, and he was a young entrepreneur himself. And he said that this would be the best thing for me and that it would be probably best for a lot of other companies in the industry. It was my theory, though, that specializing would give us a bit of an edge. So here was the concept. Let's pretend you're a reporter for a minute. And you have only so much time to write a story. Mm-hmm. Let's say you, you, you walk a certain beat. That is to say, you only cover a certain type of topic. But let's say you start covering Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. You can only write about the Bitcoin exchange I just mentioned every now and then. It's just not possible for you to write a story every single day about that company. But what if, as a PR agent, what if I could come to you with a menu of options? What if I had a Bitcoin exchange, a Bitcoin software wallet, which is an application on your phone that holds Bitcoin, a hardware wallet, kind of like a bank vault for Bitcoin, a Bitcoin ATM network, and a Bitcoin VC all at the same time. Oh, and let's not forget a Bitcoin mining pool. Mm. If you had all of these different kind of items on the menu, it might turn out that you'd come back to that restaurant more than once. Hell, you'd go at all. And it turned out that that (laughs) thesis proved true, and that's how I launched Waxman. Um, which was called Waxman PR at the time, with a handful of companies in the Bitcoin space. And honestly, because I didn't, there wasn't enough money in Bitcoin at the time, I had to work with a couple traditional fintech companies who were really, really helpful in, in launching. Um, so companies doing, like, for instance, peer-to-peer lending that were in the more traditional uh, fintech space. But I really wanted to be and, and do Bitcoin PR. And as it turned out, the timing was perfect. I said I was able to set up shop. At a WeWork, I took a three-person WeWork in mm-hmm. December of 2015, and starting uh, with, from just one person, I was able to eventually hire my my first permanent hire in March of 2016, a young woman named Emma Walker, and then one month later, a guy named Jesse Platts from from Australia, and we were able to you know jump from there. And it turned out that these people who also had no background in blockchain, they were they were PR people. Emma Walker, who now manages uh, my Irish office, was someone who had worked with like enterprise rental car before and, and Ford Motors. She, she had worked with very traditional type companies and in Ireland before she started working with me. Jesse Platts had been a TV broadcaster in Australia and then worked for the Australian military. He was a, an officer, but in the public affairs unit. So he was the type of, of guy who would embed with U.S. Special Forces in Afghanistan and tell the story of what was happening there and would media train generals and privates and everyone in between and that's what he did professionally before he joined. Again, these people had no background in Bitcoin or blockchain. What they did have, however, were the fundamentals of how to do PR well. And when they joined in, and this is all we were doing all day long, they learned very quickly. And just like probably everyone listening to this podcast, they fell in love with the technology and more importantly, what it could do. And they fell in love very, very hard. And doing this professionally gave them a huge education. Today, Jesse is uh, an account director for me and he has a small army of employees who work for him. And, uh, and of course, we've been able to grow up quite substantially. I want to talk about you starting the business for, for a little bit. You said that you were in a WeWork by yourself for how many months? It was about three months. And okay. those three months, I've got to tell you, when you have just your own WeWork, you don't show up very often. You may as well stay in your apartment and work from there. <laughs> so it was kind of a lonely place. I, I didn't have any art. Uh, I had a laptop, but I didn't even have a monitor. Um, mm-hmm. or a mouse or keyboard there. So I would just bring my laptop in and 
closed the door in the little glass cubicle that I had. And that's where I worked uh, at first until, of course, I started bringing on employees who uh, stuck around. So what was the shift from working for somebody to open your own place? Was it scary? And when you were going through that process of being that one person in your WeWork with your laptop, nothing in your office, to getting that first employee, how concerned were you? How nervous were you? How much were you determined, I have to make this work? Well, I had been convinced, I've got to tell you, that I could do a competent job for companies by myself. I had been able to do that before at the old agency and working with a disparate array of companies. And I knew enough about Bitcoin at this, space, at this time. I had been working in the industry for about a year and a half that I actually had some knowledge and I, and I knew the reporters who were covering the space well. And I had been working with them for some time. So I had, I'll tell you what, some degree of confidence that I might be able to at least pull off being a freelancer. So being a freelancer means working by yourself. And I figured that mm-hmm. was something I could probably do. I could probably make rent and you know, get dinner that night. Right. What was surprising to me and the thing that I wanted most was to actually have a team of people to work with. I mm-hmm. really wanted to build an agency where we could collaborate and work together and still specialize in the thing that I loved the most, which was crypto and blockchain technology. And uh, it wasn't, I've got to tell you, it was a, an incredible relief when I met Emma and Jesse. As it turned out, they interviewed on the exact same day. And I couldn't afford to hire both of them at the same time because I simply didn't have the revenues yet. But I literally like bet, I guessed, that there, I would be able to go and drum up the business early on. And so I, offered, I asked Jesse if he would be able to come on and start 15 days later, uh, mm-hmm. halfway through March. He actually asked instead if he could start on April 1, 2016. And I agreed. It turned out he was getting married to an American nurse. That's why he had moved over from Australia. And uh, the timing worked out perfectly. I did, in fact, bring on the business to, uh, to be able to pay his his salary and to uh, have a slightly larger WeWork, we had moved into a uh, WeWork for four people by mm-hmm. then. Things have just been been kind of growing ever since. The reason why I asked that is, you know how many people are probably sitting there listening to this podcast right now going, I always wanted to make a change. There's something I wanted to do. There's something that I know how to do and I can do it by myself, but it is so nerve wracking. It's such a risk to leave your job. Maybe if you have kids or fiance, a wife, a husband or whoever, and just, you know, make that jump. So the little bit of confidence that you had, do you recommend that everybody needs to have that confidence to make the jump? Are you happy you're working for yourself? Oh, certainly. I think it's been the the best move I've ever made because it let me go and focus my attention on what I really loved. And I know you've heard this cliche before. I think all your listeners have too. But if you're doing what you love, it's not really work. I haven't taken an actual vacation since 2012. And I don't mind it in the least because every single day I get to work with the world's smartest people, that's my clients, and with a team of people that I have literally selected to spend all of my waking hours with, and that's the employees that I've hired. That's a pretty phenomenal opportunity. If you have the chance to make a dream like that come true, you have to do it or at least try. Now, yes, there, there are risks attached, and I was happened to be the right age and had the right background where I was able to do this. And I got super lucky, let's be honest here. I happened to go and start a crypto PR agency at the end of 2015, and then the industry started taking off immediately thereafter. Don't ever discount luck and timing. I wanted to start my agency even earlier than, than I did, but I wasn't ready. It took me a little while to, to get my get warmed up and feel, feel like I could go out completely on my own. And uh, of course, it was a little, little nerve-wracking when I, when I handed in my two weeks uh, initially, but... 
I, I did have that type of confidence. One thing that's important to note is that public relations, there wasn't a lot of capex. That is to say, you don't need to spend a whole lot of money up front to start a right. public relations agency. You pretty much need your laptop and a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And the WeWork was kind of an extravagance. I had those two other things so I could kind of function, and uh, that really worked out. I guess it also helps to have some sort of website, and I think I had a Squarespace at the time. So now we know about you. We know about how you got into it, how you got interested in PR, and who taught you about cryptocurrency. Now, let's talk about your PR company, Waxman. They do crypto PR. What does that mean? Well, it means something actually very specific. So we only do one primary type of public relations. So there's a lot of different ways you can define PR. What we do is it's called earned media, media relations. That's the primary thing that we do. That is to say, we are the interface between a company, an organization, a DAO, between that and the media. And we perform that kind of logistical hurdle in pitching out stories on behalf of our clients to reporters who may or may not decide that a story that they hear from us is interesting and may or may not decide to pursue it and may or may not write an article about it or put someone on TV or on the radio. It's completely earned. It no, Nothing's guaranteed. It's all going out there and hoping that someone is actually interested in the same thing that you are. And the, the mechanics of doing that are semi-complicated, but at the end of the day, the, the concept is pretty simple. It's, I think that a company is doing something interesting or they've just done something interesting. They have something new. And then me and my team will work with that company to refine their message. That is to say what they've done, mm-hmm. who they are, what defines them and differentiates them. And then we'll go to st- reporters that we think might be interested and we'll pitch it to them. And the reporters, the vast majority of the time, will turn it down because of a thousand very, very good reasons. A, they probably have something else they're already writing about. B, this isn't exactly what they're interested in right now. Or C, they simply don't see the newsworthiness that we do. And striking out a lot and getting rejected a lot is being a PR professional. If you're not getting turned down all the time, then you're not doing it right. But as long as you don't spam people and waste reporters' time, they'll respect you for actually coming to them with ideas. Because at the end of the day, reporters do want to work with PR professionals who represent great companies and who are willing to come to them with things that are actually new so that they can do their jobs, which is to report on on the industry or report on whatever beat it is that they work on. So that's all we do. We don't do community management, which I'm sure some of your uh, listeners have heard about. We don't do social media. We don't do advertising. We don't do any what's called pay for play. Everything Mm -hmm. we do is in that earned media space, which is Mm -hmm. actually very much traditional PR. So that's the same thing PR companies were doing in the 1970s and 1940s. It's just that we've been doing this type of very traditional PR in a very, very unorthodox space, which is the crypto space. Since then, we've added a little bit to it, but PR and that earned media relations is, I'd say, the vast majority of what we do here. You reach out to writers, journalists, get people on their shows or have them write articles for them or what have you. Do you pay them? Never. Never. Never, not once. Nope. So what we do is we simply come with ideas. So the people who work for me are... PR professionals. That is to say, they've either gone to school for this or they've been journalists before Mm -hmm. and they help write messages and stories and articles that they think might be interesting. And as I said earlier, the majority of the time we get turned down. Mm -hmm. In fact, the vast majority of the time. But if you do it right, if you do this type of challenging process, 
in a professional manner, what's going to happen is inevitably some of those stories are going to be unearthed. Some reporters might think, especially when you really get to understand what a reporter wants, what's interesting to them, you may get that story through and you might get a really great article out of it. Uh, or maybe a lot of great articles out of it. And if you do this in a sustained fashion against a strategy that actually makes sense, you've suddenly built a brand, a real brand that's authentic, mm-hmm. that's not fake or artificial or paid for, but right. actually earned. And and that's the thing that our clients want from us and that we're you know proud to help them with. You know, I have a personal friend that's in PR, and I remember him talking about him representing Vitalik before Vitalik was Vitalik. He was just this kid. Wow. And he was trying to get Vitalik to talk to Forbes. And Forbes just wouldn't talk to him. They're like, we're not having this kid on. What is this Ethereum thing? What is blockchain? We don't care. Have you ever had that experience? Your portfolio of people you represent is massive. Like I said, Dash, Coindesk, Polymath, Bitfinex, Zencash, just to name a few. Have you ever represented somebody and tried to pitch them to writers and journalists? And then a couple of years later, they're just like, Wow, we regret not taking those articles. Oh my gosh, we, we strike out all the time. But it, I've got to tell you, it's far easier to communicate what blockchain is today than it used to be. It used to be near impossible. When I started doing this in 2014, if you spoke to a reporter and you said the word Bitcoin, all they thought about was Mt. Gox or they thought about Silk, Silk Road. Road. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's all they talked about. And I was like, guys, this is actually not the story. We're talking about a digital currency here, Bitcoin, and we're, right. we're talking about and or blockchain technology or something. And you'd have to go and give them the 101 every single time. So it, it's gotten much better. Mm-hmm. It's gotten better because this has become a more mainstream concept to the point where sometimes taxi drivers are going to ask you, uh, you know, what you think about the, the cryptocurrency space, which is maybe a little bit alarming. But <laughs> the, the fact is, yeah, reporters, they need, they need it initially to be educated. And we would spend so much time just talking about why this is not a scam, why it's actually great technology that right. could change the world. And then more importantly, what it is that the client that we're representing, what it is that they're doing and why it's different than, than what currently exists. When you talk to the journalist and you say, okay, please interview Mr. X or Mr. Y, do they just do a quick interview? Is that how the PR works? Or do you say, hey, take a look at this company, write about it, do a summary about it, but also you have the liberty to write what you think. And if that's the case, has that ever backfired for your PR? So reporters always have the right to write whatever it is that they want to write about. And the one expectation you have is that they will have journalistic integrity. And professional journalists, they really do. So if they report the facts, if they don't misrepresent things in a way that makes things unfactual, they have complete creative license always. We do not work in the paid space. Nothing is guaranteed whatsoever. So therefore, knowing that things are as risky and as dangerous as they are, because you could go and tell someone something and then they could completely change the angle and they could find it, instead of that being appealing, they could find it harrowing or frightening. I'll, I'll give you an example. So one of our clients is Steemit. And I, I've been working with Steemit since before we launched them back in May of 2016. And Steemit is a, a really interesting concept. It, it initially was something along the lines of what if Reddit could pay you for making posts, upvoting posts, basically being a participant in a social network. What if you got rewarded for that? And that was a really challenging concept. More challenging than that was this was still the early days of crypto, at least viewed from today's perspective. And a lot of people didn't believe in anything else except Bitcoin, even if you believe in crypto at all. Moreover, 
Steam it would launch with three different cryptocurrencies, or essentially cryptocurrencies. One was called Steam Dollars, which is a derivative instrument uh, that was more or less tied to the U.S. dollar. Another one was called Steam Power, which let you lock up your Steam in order to have more influence on the network. And explaining all of those different concepts and how they worked in the network was a really, really complicated thing to do. And reporters, they simply did not believe it at first. They thought it was a joke. And, and we kept telling them, guys, this is actually something that could be game-changing and totally, totally change the way that people, people operate. And they simply wouldn't believe it. When we would tell them and explain the mechanics of this, they would suddenly start going in the left direction and just start talking about the fact that, yes, you're using blockchain and people could post anything on there and there was no way of taking it down. And although Steam it itself, which is an application built on the Steam blockchain, allows for, for instance, copyright infringement to, to take something down, the Steam blockchain does not. That's one of the things that makes it a magical thing. It's an immutable blockchain. And um, again, reporters might... Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition, and it has AI self-learning chips, so the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery, and it lasts around four months, but don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice, and also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording. Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. misinterpret what is a feature and then might call it a bug. Nothing we can do about that. And honestly, I wouldn't want to. I, I don't want to have control of the media. They should be able to do exactly what they want to do. And it's our job as a PR agency to go and tell a story in a way that is compelling to them. And we have limited control, but that's a good thing. I think freedom is, is what we should endeavor to have in every aspect of life. 
first and foremost when it comes to the media. And now a word from our sponsor, Harry's. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Barron, and I have a baby face. I can only shave once a week. My mama says, when am I going to grow up? Mom, I'm 38 years old. But if I shave more than once a week, then I get cuts, scrapes, nicks, razor bumps, and so on. So I am very, very picky on my razors. I need something that is smooth, close, comfortable, and you know what? The blades, if they're not sharp, I'm in trouble. So when I tried Harry's, I was impressed. I usually spend roughly around $4 or $5 per blade, but Harry's is much more affordable at costing only about $2 a blade. Harry's can do this by selling directly, straight over the internet. Harry bought their own manufacturing plant so they can manufacture the best quality blades for you. So if you want to save money on your razors and get some of the best quality blades out there, try Harry's and go to harrys.com crypto and you're going to get a free trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, five blade razor with a lubricating strip, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com crypto to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. Now, back to the show. I understand that. I think I 100% agree with you. But like you just said, explaining is complicated. You have to tell them the facts, you know, and the facts are kind of one of those kind of wishy-washy things when it comes to cryptocurrency because you can tell somebody one thing. For example, Bitcoin is a great means of transacting, you know, for P2P business. And at the same time, they can look at Silk Road and go, well, P2P business means, you know, drugs and, you know, all kinds of legal, you know, illegal things. So with that interpretation of the journalist, and of course, using their best in journalist integrity, doesn't mean that they have the education or the facts of the whole process of the whole technology. And does that backfire sometimes? I mean, have you ever had a company that you represented that you said, all right, this journalist or this media outlet is going to write or do a story on them, and it just totally backfired? And if it did, how do you clean up from that? No question we have. There, there are times when, when hit pieces happen and you know you do your very best to prepare, to understand kind of what a journalist's motive might be before getting into a story, but you can't predict it because people are people. And as I said earlier, you want to give them the, that type of freedom. So if they haven't violated any journalistic code um, that, again, is kind of common knowledge between people in, the, in this industry, there's nothing you can do about it. As mm-hmm. far as how to clean up the mess, I always find that storytelling is far, far better and more convincing if you leave out the adjectives and the adverbs. So we do our very best here to try and do just that, to tell nouns and verbs in a way that actually makes sense, Mm -hmm. to tell a story that is harder to totally misinterpret. So it turns out that if you architect sentences in a certain way, it's a little bit harder to misquote you. That's not to say that some of our clients haven't had an unfair shake before. Of course they have, but it's a very wide world out there. And it turns out people look at brands, not on individual events most of the time, individual stories even fewer. People look at brands based on the accumulation of information they've received about a company, product, a service over time. And it's whatever sticks with them that walks away with them that's the brand. Right. And our jobs are to help create and promote and to protect those brands. And we do our very best to do so by 
again, doing our homework, spending time beforehand. So when we do pitch out a story, we think it's something that's going to be less likely to be misinterpreted. When we do go and pitch a reporter, we spend the time, however long it takes, to educate reporters so they have a full, fullest possible understanding mm-hmm. of what it is that our clients have accomplished. And again, why it's newsworthy. I can't stress that enough. Newsworthiness matters. If something is not new, it's old. Mm-hmm. And reporters don't like that. They right. only write about what they consider to be newsworthy and interesting, both to their audience but also to themselves. Now, so for the, for the clients, I mean, the clients are paying you. Now, when this story mm-hmm. comes out and the clients say, whoa, what's going on here? This journalist did this and they said this. Well, this is absolutely not what our company's about. How do you mitigate that anger or that you know direction towards you, the company that's supposed to be doing a certain job? And how do you deal with the, your client that might have, you know, just what we just said. The journalist has their own interpretation. They have their own right to write whatever they want and how they perceive the company that you're representing but does the company understand that and then how do you deal with that relationship oh yes i mean i'd say a lot of working with startups is explain to them kind of the mechanics of how journalists work so we do what's called media training here and we we make sure that all of our clients go through that process and media training is not some sort of crazy uh, concept or indoctrination media training is making sure that our clients have an understanding of what to do and what not to do. For instance, probably don't wear a green shirt if you're going to go on broadcast and they're using a green screen. That's You're going to be literally transparent. Another thing <laughs> not to do is don't say things you're not supposed to say because it's not yet announced or the ink is not dry on a contract. If you mm-hmm. announce things that are, are not actually true, you could have major repercussions. We also inform them of the risks. Don't go into PR assuming it's advertising. Sometimes things will not turn out your way. And that's okay. That's just simply the way things work. You got to care about the, the big picture, not about the small picture. And explaining them some, the mechanics of it is, is certainly very important. I mean, people make mistakes. We've certainly made mistakes. Um, but the, the fact is, if you do this professionally and you, you do it often enough, you're going to get good results at least the vast majority of the time. And, and we've been very, very lucky to, to have just that. Speaking of these companies, you represent, like I said, a lot of big name companies in the crypto business right now. There are a lot of companies coming out every day. And they're in ICOs or STOs or different you know, forms of people make, raising money. Then they need PR. They're coming to your company. Are there any companies that you do not deal with, ICOs or what have you? Or is it you're looking at the merit of the product, the project, and the people that are running it? As it turns out, at Wackman, we spend an enormous amount of time doing diligence. Hmm. So last month, for various reasons, I'd say top of among those reasons being capacity, but there are other reasons too, we had to unfortunately turn down more than 300 companies wow. that came to us. We go through companies as carefully as we possibly can, and I've hired a team of really extraordinary people to work alongside me in the process of determining which ones are going to be our clients. Because as it turns out, having really great companies to represent gives you a bit of an edge when you're working with reporters because they know that these companies are doing something meaningful and have really accomplished something. We work with very few companies undergoing token sales. Mm-hmm. For us, what really is interesting is actually built technology, and there simply aren't enough companies out there that have actually built something and are doing something remarkable today. Right. And that's, that's the type of company we really um, opt to work with here at Waxman. We, we certainly believe in many different pathways and usages of blockchain technology, so our clients 
have been everything from social networks to companies improving on insurance and, and kind of everything in between. So it's kind of a very wide swath of, of companies. The one thing tethering all of them together is that they are blockchain companies. That is to say, in some way, shape, or form, they're using a type of technology that I'm convinced is going to be completely ubiquitous in the years to come. You said 300 companies you turned away. Was that just because the companies did not meet your criteria to join Waxman, or was it just the capacity of Waxman right now? And if so, are you going to change that to get more companies, or do you really like the exclusivity that you have? I think it's kind of a mix of both. So we, we turned down 300 last month, but I, I mean, I only have 102 employees right now, and that's something that I'm trying to to grow as quickly as I can, but making sure that you have the right mix of employees, the right mix of clients, uh, the right service offerings is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think that you know we're, we're trying to always improve on that and always provide better services to our clients. And we, um, I'm willing to make gigantic investments to make sure that's the case. But our, our requirements in terms of clientele are, are quite, uh, quite stringent mm-hmm. because we want to work with companies that we fully believe in because I don't want to go and sell a story that I don't believe in. And right. it turns out working with companies, and you mentioned some of them earlier, whether it's working with Elf or with Lisk or with eToro, when you're working with companies like that, um, it's very easy to go and say, I fully believe in what they're doing because they are doing remarkable things. And honestly, it's an honor to be able to be their chief storyteller or one of their chief storytellers because you get to go and, and, and talk about what they're doing. And these guys are always doing remarkable things. So you kind of have an opportunity to shape the, the news cycle to some extent by making sure that you know when it is that IOHK releases some extraordinary new research paper, that it gets in the hands of people who should be reading that research paper. Because academia at the end of the day is built on research papers being released criticism of those papers going out, um, and then a continuous iteration on top of that. And being able to be part of that process is kind of a remarkable thing. And again, it starts with us simply being able to pitch reporters and figuring out which reporters might be interested. So it's a kind of an amazing thing, once again, that we get to tell stories of companies doing amazing things and do it on repeat. Right. If we simply don't believe in that company fully, it's very hard to do. That's not to say that there are companies that we've had to turn away um, because we didn't believe in them. It's also capacity. It's, it turns out it requires an enormous amount of manpower to do what we do, as limited as it is, very well. We have very significant teams of people devoted to working on a very few number of clients at any given time because we found that's the only way for us to be able to fully tell these client stories in, in a world-class fashion. And that's something that we're constantly iterating upon and, and trying to improve. But um, you simply can't do it all. You are obviously a professional, an expert, and passionate about PR. At the same time, you are also very passionate about Bitcoin and blockchain technology. Do you think that your part, being PR, getting this connection to media companies is making a difference in the blockchain world to move it from concept to mainstream? I sure hope so. Um, I'm very lucky to be in this position working with so many remarkable companies. And these are the companies that are really going to make the difference. I simply have the opportunity to connect them with media companies that are increasingly interested in this industry. And my hope is, is that by giving exposure to companies that have actually built things, that have actually found solutions to real fundamental problems in society, that I hope that providing that exposure will make a difference. Absolutely. And, and I've got to tell you, when I have an opportunity to have drinks with a reporter, 
and we get to speak off the record and we get to talk about how things have evolved since they started covering the beat. It's amazing to watch, as they say, their own discovery. You know, in the early days of, of crypto, whenever you read someone's bio, this is only barely a hyperbole. Whenever you read someone's bio, what it said was, I just, this is how it always read. I discovered the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi's white paper, when I was X years old or in this year, and it changed my life. It was like everyone had their coming to Jesus moment. Mine is a little bit different than that as I literally approached this initially as a professional, and then I simply bought in because I believed in it because I kept learning more and more and more and spending time with a lot of very smart people. I also happened to go and invest my life in something that I saw IQ points flooding in left and right. And I thought that was a, a pretty good move and it had, of course has worked out. But my hope is that by being a PR agent and a service provider for some of these remarkable companies, that we improve their chances of doing something remarkable. And some of them really are. Continue with this, you know, getting everything to mainstream, getting Bitcoin cryptocurrency to the mainstream. What do you think else needs to be done besides PR to help push blockchain and cryptocurrency forward? I think we need to see a lot, of, a lot more applications where no one knows they're using blockchain or cryptocurrency at all mm -hmm. for it to function. We need to have technology be sublimated and folded into the stack sufficiently that no one even realizes they're using blockchain. Mm -hmm. When that happens and an app developer, and I say app, it can be adapt to, but an app developer says, we have 25 million people today using blockchain technology, like literally in the last 24 hours using blockchain, and they don't even realize they're using it. When those types of stories get out there, that's when I'm gonna be convinced that we have really entered the mainstream. Until then, I, I think it's gonna be a, a tough challenge. QR codes, very challenging Bitcoin wallet addresses, the security problems that we have today, some of the stuff is gonna be ironed out with simply better tech. Mm -hmm. We have huge challenges when it comes to transaction speeds, Interoperability between blockchains is something that we're still exploring as an industry. Of course, there's massive regulatory hurdles that we still have to get over because the regulators have been spending a lot of time learning about the industry. But of course, they're going to be behind the technologies pioneering. Academia is even just starting to really get serious about this. It, it wasn't long ago where there was no place where you could really take a class on, on Bitcoin or next to no places. And nowadays, every MBA school seems to have a course on blockchain. And I think that these are hallmarks or I should say milestones in the progress of crypto becoming mainstream. But what we need to see is more end user applications where it's just fully baked in. And the more of those we see, I think the more exciting this is going to get. You know, most people look at this as a justification by price. You just said that you, the more people that are using blockchain that don't know they're using blockchain is when it's mainstream. But what about the people and what about the price of Bitcoin, you know, when they say, oh, it's finally hit a trillion dollar market cap or it's the same market cap as gold, six point whatever trillion dollars. Is that mainstream or is that just a facade? That's all nonsense. So whether Bitcoin <laughs> I, I hope is not. I want a Lambo. at 6,700, <laughs> yeah, whether Bitcoin is 6,700 or 20,000 or 100,000, mm -hmm. I think it, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Not in the end. It, it does matter to your portfolio. And obviously for you, I hope that things go well. And as far as the whole market goes, it seems Bitcoin is dragging the rest of it. So when Bitcoin goes up, the market goes up. When Bitcoin goes down, the market goes down. At least that's how it seems today. Mm -hmm. But in the end, what's going to happen is that cryptocurrency is going to be something that people are using all the time in probably many different applications. And various forms of, of blockchain are going to be probably used as fundamental layers in everything. You're, if your refrigerator 
is selling services to your washing machine, which is possible in an IoT future. It's going to need to transfer value somehow, and it seems like cryptocurrencies are the best way to do that. It's, it's, that, I think, is kind of the future. And that's kind of what mainstream means. I, I'm, I'm not looking at, at the prices all the time. To me, right. that's not a reflection of what mainstream is because there are probably lots of coins out there that are far overvalued where they don't have a lot of technology and where the ecosystem is simply not sufficiently mature to, to merit that price. But then again, what do I know when it comes to that? I don't, I'm not sure anyone has full answers. They have pretty good approximations given the rest of the market. But you've got to remember, when it comes to utility tokens that we see out there, the price of a single token is essentially ownership of a slice of the network. Yes, mm-hmm. there are other, other characteristics that make a token worth, worthwhile. But at the end of the day, that's kind of what it boils down to. And putting a price on protocols and platforms it's something that has been very, very hard to do historically, which is why that blockchain is such a remarkable uh, technology because it allows us to finally put value on on these types of, of what were previously hard to pin down concepts and hard to price concepts. But again, we're still we as a species and society are only getting better at this over time. We're not there yet. But again, it's not going to be about the price. It's going to be about the actual use of this all the time. That's what we should be aiming for. I'm pretty sure everything else will take care of itself. Since we're talking about moving this into mainstream prices and the technology, who is somebody that you look up to in the crypto space? And I mean by this question is if they are on the news or in the media or sending a tweet, you're more than likely going to stop what you're doing and read it. Who would that person be? I've got to say, and call me biased all you want, but when Charles Hoskinson says something, I listen. I think he's one of, if not the world's smartest people. And uh, he has pioneered some of the remarkable technologies and he has just an unbelievable knowledge about about what's going on out there. I've, I've had the opportunity to walk around Zurich with him and he seemed to know everything in every shop window. And uh, that's the type of person who <laughs> I'm super happy has the opportunity to go and, and reshape the cryptocurrency space. So people like him are, are kind of my heroes and I'm, I'm lucky to call them my clients too. Whose advice would you take in general in the crypto space? If you were, say, I don't know, I don't want to say investing, but maybe looking at that next avenue. I mean, you're a PR company. There's probably new tech coming out all the time, new companies. And they said, you better look this way for the future. Who would that person be that guided your eyes to that direction? Would that well, also I be Charles? Well, I think there's a lot of <laughs> different characteristics. Well, he's certainly one of them, but there's, there's, there's a lot of them out there. I think we're, we're seeing from some of the attorneys the really high-end attorneys in the space that are pioneering and helping create policy. I think that's really interesting. Um, certainly Vitalik is someone who is, is, is a genius, and he has been, has been creating really remarkable technology for a long time. Um, and by the way, let's not forget a very important part of his resume. He was one of the founders of Bitcoin Magazine, which is a wonderful right. news publication. There, there, there are really a lot of smart people in this industry and people whose advice I take wholeheartedly. And... I think uh, staying tuned to Twitter is, is, is one thing. But to me, I, I pay much more attention to long form. The theorists and the academics who are writing some of the really wonderful missives, whether it's hedge fund analysts, for some reason, they seem to be, uh, be writing a lot of the great content out there. Um, I think that's the type of stuff that I'm really interested in because I like the fundamental technologies. I like the, the thorny stuff because I know that that's the infrastructure that's going to go and build the consumer level applications I was talking about earlier. 
You need to solve the hard problems so we can go and solve the easier ones. And when people can simply build on top of great infrastructure, um, I think that's, again, going to be a major step towards, towards mainstreaming this, this industry. Right on, man. Right on. You know, Crypto 101 is positioning itself to be maybe the first place that a lot of people are going to look when they start getting into the crypto space. It's quite possible that this is one of the first podcasts or the first podcast that they will listen to on that journey down the rabbit hole. There's a lot of media out there. There's a lot of people doing PR. There's a lot of different things that are calling themselves PR when it's actually just, you know, forceful paid, like you said, advertisement on Facebook or Twitter or wherever they're, they're doing their advertisement. What advice would you give to that one-on-one person to help them sift through all of the information come from media or PR companies to them to get them to either invest or buy or look different directions? Well, my, my first bit of advice would be if you don't know anything about blockchain, if you haven't been spending a lot of time reading about this and learning about this, please stick to the basics. Don't listen to the hype. Bitcoin and Ethereum are absolutely wonderful technologies and Again, if you have to invest in this industry and you don't know a whole lot, please stay there. That's my first bit of advice. Again, I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, I I'm, I'm, I'm don't run a hedge fund, but I think that seems like pretty safe advice. Moreover, I think you should read as much content as you possibly can. Read the, the news sites that have a lot of integrity. Find the reporters out there. And there are loads that are actually exploring the industry and finding what's new. And start with some of the basics. Really do that. There's great YouTube videos all over the place that explain how this works. And I think that until such time as this is completely ubiquitous, you really do need to understand the the technology. So go find out what proof of work is and what proof of stake is, and, and find out the difference between a virtual machine uh, that's uh, deterministic and, and one that isn't, for instance, right? Or I should say, turn complete and non-turn complete. I, I think that if you do these types of learn these types of concepts, it's going to help you a whole lot in understanding, again, why these different coins or protocols or platforms or dApps, what makes them different from each other aside from the marketing fluff. And at the end of the day, just keep learning. It turns out I'm, I'm, I think that most people will be hyper attracted to it. And by learning some, they're going to want to learn a lot more. Do you have a tried and true method to sift through the FUD in the hype? When you're a new person and you're reading, you're probably, you know, just spreading your everything out there. You're trying to read everything. You're on Twitter, you're on Reddit, you're, you know, you're just everywhere, right? But sometimes there's a lot of conflicting information. You can be on one blog reading one thing about the blockchain that it's the new technology, it's the new internet, it's going to be everything's going to be internet of things floating around on blockchain in the other same time as you're going to see something that says that Ethereum can't handle the load, that we need to, you know, have new implementations of sharding or plasma or things like that, or else this isn't going to work and it's not working right now. And you can see that in the clogged networks and things. So you have these two different, you know, perspectives coming in there, and this is maybe not the best example, two different perspectives coming at blockchain to this new person, they don't know what to believe. Is there any way to differentiate? I think the main thing to do is try to go and read as much as you can from news sources that you can trust, places that have proven time and again to have really good factual information, whether you're reading Coin Journal or Coin Report or Coin Desk, and a lot of them start with Coin, it's true. But if you read these publications that focus on it, that have journalists who have been doing this for some time, I think you're going to get better information, again, that's a comparative sense, than someone who's just reading random comments in random threads um, in various different fora. I mm-hmm. think you're going to probably get better information. That's not to say that you're always going to get the latest and greatest. It might be that 
uh, forum might have the newest information. But in terms of what can you trust, I think that's a, a great place to start. That's not to say that reporters are always right. Of course, they make mistakes. They're human beings after all. But a lot of reporters spend as much time as they can going after the facts and doing as much research as they possibly can. And, and you've got to give them a lot of credit. They've been waiting through a lot of crap as well. And when a reporter gets <laughs> a thousand true. pitches a day, sometimes they do, they get a thousand pitches a day and they've got to go and figure out what A, they think is interesting and B, what is something that they can write that is based on facts mm-hmm. that they can go and, and turn into a story in a relatively short period of time. It's, it's a really hard thing that they do and you got to give them a lot of credit. Are there any journalists that you like to pay attention to in this space? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the so many of the journalists at CoinDesk, Pete Rizzo is is kind of a hero of mine, too. He has been following the space for a very long time and is a skeptic, which I really, really like in a journalist. I think that being able to say no and ask hard questions is a very big part of, of doing their job. And the great journalists, they're able to go and hunt a story down. They'll, they'll find the weakness in your argument and they'll go after it. Uh, those are the people who I love working with because they get they bring out the best in us and they make us spend even more time preparing to make sure that when we do bring them something that we actually have you know all of our ducks in a row right on man david waxman thank you very much for coming on crypto 101 and telling us you know 101 on pr the, the crypto space yourself and helping out a 101 get into the crypto space itself but i have one more question for you sir what three songs would you like on our crypto 101 spotify playlist Okay, well, I'm gonna go with some of my old favorites. So let's start with Third Eye Blind. Nice. Um, and actually, let's <laughs> go with an off track from called All Right, Caroline. It's a very good one that very few people know. I'll tell you number two for sure. If it's not on there yet, you must put it on there. And that's the Bitcoin Jingle by Tatiana Moroz. If you don't know her, you really should. And I think she should probably be a guest on the show. Right. She's uh, one of my <laughs> oldest friends in crypto. She's OG, I'll tell you that, she really is. All right. And let me see the last one. This is one of the newest ones I got, and it was so amazing. It's called Blockchain Movement by Art Love and Gordon Jones. And I laughed my ass off when I first heard this song. Um, it's great, and it's actually got a pretty good tune to it, too. Check it out. Blockchain Movement by Art Love and Gordon Jones. All right, man. Hey, you're a music guy, aren't you? A little bit. <laughs> right on, man. You got excited there. You're like, oh, yeah, bad these people. Who was this person you said? Uh, they said Bitcoin Jingle, one of the OGs? Yes, Tatiana Moroz. So Tatiana actually founded the Artist Coin back in 2014, which okay. was the first ever coin for musicians. And she's been super in the, the crypto space for a very long time and has been a, a great friend to me and honestly to the entire industry uh, for years. And it turns out she's also a singer-songwriter. So she has some really great work that she's developed uh, focusing on the Bitcoin space, and it's worth checking out. Right on. Cool, man. David, thank you very much for coming on Crypto 101, and have a great day, and I hope to see you back here. And, well, if you ever want to come on Crypto 101 again, just hit me up, and I would love to hear about these projects that you're representing. Absolutely. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. David, if you're listening... Thank you again for coming on the show. Next on the Crypto 101 feed, we have a show from ICO 101 with Aaron Paul, where he's going to sit down with Anko. And in the next Crypto 101 episode, we're going to sit down with The Crypto Cousins, another crypto podcast, and we're going to talk to fellow podcasters. We did a cross-collaboration. They interviewed me. I interviewed them. And we'll get other podcasters' opinion about 
podcasting in the crypto space. Before we go, like always, ApogeeCrypto.com, that's A-P-O-G-E-E, Crypto.com, the best place for your real-time prices. CryptoNews.com, if you want some news. WPOnTheFly.co, if you want a website. And this is Matthew Aaron, and we'll see you in the next episode of Crypto 101. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.